0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. G'day, and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. Businesses that I own, there's a whole dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of staff working full-time for my benefit.
1: (laughs) Getting out of the way.
0: Let them do their thing. And if if, if they're good at what they do and there's good dynamics... um, with the business, that that will just bear out over time.
1: That's Andrew Page from Strawman, arguably Australia's leading online investment club. It's all about its members and how they analyse and choose which stocks to invest in. Remember, I have a listener survey at SharesForBeginners.com/survey. As I was putting the final touches on this episode and rolling it in glitter while listening to some fine disco remixes from Joey Negro, I received this note from Greg W. Greg asked, A lot of your people say, do your own research. The problem I have is, I don't know where to start with said research. What kind of information should I be looking for, and where to find it? That's a great question, Greg, and I hope that this episode helps to answer it. Dive into Strawman and see research in action. You'll see the kind of information you should be looking for and where you can find it. I usually try and edit episodes down to around 30 minutes, but because Greg doesn't mind a longer episode, I've kept it a bit longer. I try to do what you, the listener, asks for. So, let's hear from Andrew and where to start with research. Okay, Andrew, so you started at um, Comsec originally, you were telling me. How was that? Yes.
0: Yeah, well, it was really interesting for a couple of reasons. I had no formal financial qualifications, having completed a degree in microbiology of all things. And it was also in the tech boom, so late 90s, where everything with dot-com attached to it, where share prices were, were going crazy. Perhaps not too dissimilar to, to what we're seeing today, in fact, <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways. But it was, it was a, a trial by fire and, and very much in the deep end. This was also at a time when online broking was becoming a thing. And ComSec really is sort of the first major player in that space.
1: Because this was, that was a, they were the first major player, weren't they? They was, were. Um, there's a plethora of uh, choices these days in online broking, but they were the pioneers, weren't they? They were. And the yeah. best
0: advantage that they had wasn't necessarily one of technology, but it was one of branding. But, you know, in, in the early days, it really had nothing to do with understanding finance or investing. We were simply just taking orders on the phone. Um, processing so you were one them. of the phone jockeys? I was one you? of the phone jockeys. Yeah. In fact, the very first job was just quoting share prices. People would ring up and say, what's well, big? It was really interesting. It was it was really wild. And it taught all the wrong lessons because it was that crazy rampant bull market where everything was just going nuts. So to me, as a wide eyed young guy, I was just thinking, this is great, you know, I'm gonna make a fortune. And to me, I, I relative to, to what I had at the time, I did, you know, and and but I, I was I was making good money not by doing anything smart it was just the rising tide phenomenon and of course you, you fast forward and it's a predictable outcome you know that that whole sector of the market crashed and, and any profits i'd managed to generate went with it so it was an incredibly valuable lesson not just in terms of how that industry worked but how the sort of the psychology of markets and and all of these things and it really prompted a Again, coming from a science background, I, I was sort of very much accustomed to sort of thinking in terms of evidence and proof. And this is an industry where there's not a lot of good academic rigor behind a lot of approaches that you see in the market. You really? Know, you, well, there, there's a lot of great stuff out there, but I mean, anyone just has to sort of Google, you know, how to how to invest in the share market, and you come across all kinds of sort of crazy things. Mm. But even at even at that sort of Corporate level, there was there was a lot of approaches. We're going to wander into sort of ideological territory here, but you know, approaches that I would sort of deem to be very ill founded and very poor supported by evidence, and very much sort of based around speculation and, for want of a better term, gambling. And but it's it's a super sexy space. Hope springs eternal. Brokers make their money when you trade. Not by when you sit on shares. So there's a very strong incentive f- to encourage that kind of stuff. So anything that that it enhances that, whether it sort of be stop loss uh, orders or intraday trading strategies or you know anything anything like that, they are going to have an incentive to to encourage you to do because they make more money. And and I'd argue strongly that you know it 's probably the the less you trade, the better you will do.
1: I just want to go back because you just mentioned they coming from a scientific background you d- you thought there was no rigor or you felt that there was no rigor in that space yeah what what are the some of the things that you felt weren 't rigorous and that you were able to use your scientific background to apply more rigor
0: i 'm always reluctant to go down this territory because we we 're instantly going to. Um, make half your audience very angry <laughs> because we do, we do get into sort of these... Uh, they're beginners. They're, it's yeah. okay. They're not going to get angry. Look, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people who feel very strongly on these topics. And, and I guess I'd start by sort of saying you have to do what you feel is right and you have to go on a process of discovery and feel what's right for you. But but to answer your question and um, with all that disclaimer out of the way, I, I think one of the, the real areas of, of pseudo science in this kind of area is technical analysis, charting. I'm not a fan and and it's not it's not something that i've just decided against it it's it's one of the things where again i I really made an effort after that period to sort of try and dig into um, investing approaches and 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 look at ways that seem to be well supported and the rest of it and here's something that sort of there's just i couldn't find any evidence for that to to work consistently i mean the, the market is a probabilistic space you can have any kind of crazy technique and it's going to work sometimes but there was nothing like that. And there was also, particularly working for a broker, I mean, you know, you're know, you handling a lot of accounts there. And Lord knows I never saw anyone who could consistently make that work over time. Now, a lot of people will disagree with that. There'll be a lot of people out there who, who swear by it and, and good luck to them. Yeah, right.
1: a lot of people just love it. A know. lot of people love it. Yeah.
0: And I think, the, I think the appeal of it comes because it's easy Relatively, now you contrast that with a more fundamental approach that, that I'm um, more inclined towards, which requires understanding business models, understanding a lot of economic concepts, having to uh, have a good appreciation of accounting, uh, financial statements. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot of hard work. It's isn't a huge it? amount of hard work. Yeah. and and even if you get through all of that, you then got this sort of emotional sort of um, discipline and fortitude that you need to sort of allow these things to to bear fruit. Um, whereas charting, particularly again, we're in this era where everything is 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 um, software is just growing strongly. You know, the old guys did it on on pen and paper. Now you could do it on a software package, and it's going to do all the charting for you. So you would have all these indicators that would just say buy or sell, and something that just basically flashes green or red. Is much easier to do. Again, with a probabilistic endeavor like investing, you, you are going to get a false negatives and false positives and stuff all of the time. But I'm talking about something on a statistical significant basis over multiple different market periods and environments that sort of tends to consistently work. I've, I've, not, found, I've not found much satisfaction mm-hmm. in, that, in that pursuit. So I'm correct in am I correct in
1: assuming that um, you believe that eventually the share price will reflect the underlying
0: value of the company? Absolutely, I, uh, and 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 you know what I I I think that's a really great way of summing it up, and that's a Buffett quote. You know, if the business performs well, the share price will follow. And you don't have to take that on faith. I mean, you look at any company, any company. Pick one at random on the ASX. And look over a meaningful period of time, so five years, ideally longer, 10 years, and look at the share price. And if that share price has gone sideways over 10 years, I'd bet you a large sum of money that earnings have gone nowhere in, in, in a 10-year period of time. Now, there'll be periods where earnings aren't going anywhere, but the share price could be flying up or flying down. Earnings could be falling and the share price could be going. So it's, it's crazy sort of things happen. It's, it's, a, it's a sentiment-driven machine in the short run. But when you look at it over a broader period of time, it there is a, a perfect correlation, almost perfect correlation. Um, and likewise, you look at the real success stories over the long term, you know, uh, Cochlear or CSL or anything, the, the share price <laughs> follows the earnings. So to me, it just became really apparent that if I could focus on companies who I felt I had a good uh, 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 or a realistic chance of trying to roughly gauge where earnings were headed, over say, a three to five year sort of plus period, I put the odds in my favour significantly. Now, if you're like me, pretty much any time you buy a share, it falls the next day probably falls a lot the next day um is that, we, I thought that was just me no it happens all the time and, okay but I, listeners will be pleased to hear that so don't hit those stop losses no to forget oh man we could get into stop losses I I, I I think that it's it's such a distraction and we we focus so much on this ticker symbol and these daily we forget that we've actually again it's it's so boring for one of a better word but it, it is we we forget that we're actually buying a little chunk of a company Companies don't change day to day, you know, generally speaking, but the share price will change a lot. And a lot of that will be driven by what happened on U.S. markets, what's happening with commodity prices, what's happening with interest rates, you know, things that that, that are not unimportant but aren't really the key determinant to the long-term success of a business. Now, when you take any one of those sort of concepts, uh, macro and economic sort of ideas, and you and I can debate where we think the Australian economy is at, where it's sort of headed over the next few years, undoubtedly where it does head will impact most businesses on on the ASX. But it doesn't say much about their long-term earnings power and the true intrinsic value of that business. And if you get that part right, it kind of doesn't matter what happens in the short term. I've been lucky enough to have some really great long term investments. And I can tell you that without exception, all of them underperformed in the first at least few months that I, I um, held them, in some cases years. And it was a roller coaster ride. But as the business delivered on expectations and the fundamentals started to outweigh the sentiment, it really started to bear fruit and the, the, the pendulum swings. And and that is where you make your money. The great thing about that too, Phil, is, is that you don't have to, once you've done your research, once you've understood the company, you don't have to do much. You know, I, I have all of our family's money in the market um, and in our business, um, but I probably trade a handful of times a year. I'm a very inactive trader. Because the businesses that I own, there's a whole dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of staff working full time <laughs> for my benefit, <laughs> getting out of the way. Let them do their thing. And if, if, if they're good at what they do and there's good dynamics um, at, at, with the business, that, that will just bear out over time. And not only that, you you avoid transaction costs. You avoid tax. In fact, when you do sell, you, you get that capital gains discount for holding for 12 months. And you allow this phenomenal thing called compounding to take effect, and compounding is just the most amazing thing in the world, but <laughs> just it, it's not evident over short periods of time. Compounding isn't a thing over a twelve-month period, two-year period, three. You need to extend that out for that to really, really sort of um, reveal itself. And when you look at the great investors and you look at the great success stories on the market, it's not. For the guy who may have bought and sold, made 10% here and there, it's the person who bought, you know, Commonwealth Bank at six bucks and popped it in the bottom drawer. It's the person who bought, you know, Cochlear when it was at 50 bucks. Now, that's not to say it's a set and forget. And, and people like to sort of um, talk about, you know, buy and hold being dead. And it's, you know, it's an unthinking strategy. It's, 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 a, it's a case of buying with the intention to hold. Keeping your finger on the pulse, absolutely selling when you've realized that you've made a mistake, not because the share price didn't trend the way you thought in the short term, but because you misunderstood a key aspect of the business. Absolutely sell, get out. Um, but unless there's any broad material change to your, your core investment thesis or to the, the inherent value of the company relative to the price on the market, don't do a damn thing. There was uh, an academic study on a large uh, online broker in the US, and they went through all of these accounts to looking for the best performers. They were looking for various things. But one of the surprising things that came out of it was that the the cohort that performed the best were from inactive accounts where the the person had died. (laughs) So essentially, but the shares were still there in the account. And markets went up, markets went down. And when they sort of looked at it later on, these were the people that performed really well. And the people in there fiddling and you know, sort of getting in their own way were the ones that just didn't. And I think that speaks volumes. Most of us have to work, right? Most of us don't have the luxury of just having millions of dollars that we can just sit around idly investing on a day-to-day basis. So we're pretty busy in our lives. And if you're adopting an approach which requires you to sit in front of a screen for five hours a day or six hours a day between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. doing this, doing that, it's a full-time job. And when you sort of – I sort of say it to a lot of my mates who are very active and they're they're more traders than investors. It's like, you know, they might have a good year. And you sort of say, well, what what did that actually work out to on a per-hour basis? I know for some my mates, they would have been better packing shelves at Coles. If if you want to talk about the the effort put into yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah, you made money, but what was that per hour? And by the way, what was the stress and emotional term, turmoil that it was involved? How many cigarettes? How many, many you cigarettes? and whiskeys did <laughs> you have to drink to sort of you know calm your nerves? And where, then get
1: up at six in the morning and do all your research, or even four, or five in the morning do, you do know your what research mean? before the market opens. I know I've seen yeah. these, and know, you're these looking people, at yeah.
0: you're looking at things that have no import. What the US did yeah. overnight, or you know. What tweet Donald Trump sent out? I mean, Mm. you tell me what impact that is going to have on the fundamental earning power of Cochlear over the next five years? Mm -hmm. Nothing. Yeah, you know, virtually nothing, and we are easily distracted like small children, you know, like exciting things. <laughs> but the exciting things are, are the unimportant We're things. We're like uh, the cats following the lasers. That's exactly what we are, you know. <laughs> it's, it's exactly what we are. So tell us about Strawman. Why did you start Strawman? It's essentially an investment club. You know, there's a lot of buzzwords with fintech and all of this stuff around, but it, it's, it's an old-fashioned investment club. And there's a huge amount of value in that. And The idea is really just bringing together a host of dedicated private investors to collaborate, share ideas, and as the name suggests, to, to challenge ideas, we we think the best way to improve an investment thesis is to challenge it. Not because we want to have arguments; <laughs> the internet's full of arguments. Ray Dalio, big US fund manager, calls it thoughtful disagreement, and it's about talking to people who have a different perspective to you, or have different insights, different experiences, can bring something to the table and help help broaden your understanding of a business. The trouble is that so you know traditionally you'd. You, have a few people in your club you might sort of meet around a dinner table one night a week and sort of talk it through we wanted to do this online um and sort of get a much bigger club Uh, and the challenge with that was sort of having the mechanisms in place to make that um a feasible sort of proposition but we felt that that there was a real gap in the market there there's there's other online forums out there I would argue there's there's two major problems with them. One is they're extremely noisy and cluttered places. You go there and yeah, there's a lot of activity, um, but there's a lot not of-
1: very user friendly. I find some some of these uh, things. You know, it's very difficult to navigate. And you know, what are you looking for? You know, you want to find something on a company, and there's a million threads to follow. There's
0: a million threads, and they're all just pretty much in, in chronological order, and don't get me wrong. There's some great contributors there. There's some phenomenal contributors there. But if you, you sort of arrive on the scene, it's like, well, which thread do I read? How long do I have to go sort of through that? Get rid of all the guff. You know, people just saying, Hey, why is the share price up today? Anyone else holding this? You know, it, it, it's not adding anything to your insight. So we, we felt that there could be a big improvement in the organization of that, of those insights and information. So one of the key things that Strawman does is we just have one page for every company. And anyone can can post what we call a straw. It's kind of like a tweet or something. It's a concise insight or perspective on a company. But then we open that up to community endorsement and and um, peer review. So you can vote on those kinds of things. So when you arrive at Strawman, you'll see the most highly endorsed posts there. They also age and date and stuff as well. So it's we try to keep it current. We try to make sure it's peer reviewed. Um anyone can still say anything. We're not trying to silence or censor anyone in any way, shape or form, but we're trying to give a user a better idea of what are the, the most well regarded sort of insights. The other problem we think with a lot of online sites is that there's no accountability. So we've all got these random usernames. And who's who's behind that? And someone's speaking very forcefully on a particular stock on whether you should buy or sell well, who are they? You know, is this someone that has any track record? Is this someone who has any authority? So um, you don't have that on other sites. So one of the things that we do on on Strawman is is that we we rank people. Um, you can make recommendations. We'll track that against the market. You can make any kind of, you can post valuations, you can post insights, and that's all ranked. And it's, it's not, it's not because we're a, an elitist group, but it's, it's, it's to give users the ability to sort of, when you see someone contributing that you can say, Hey, wow, this guy has really delivered some great insights. He's well regarded by the community. His recommendations tend to perform pretty well. I might, I might hear what he has to say. There's might be someone over here who's making a lot of noise. A lot of people disagree. Everything they touch turns to mud. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're not, they're not worth doing. I mean, and the other thing that, it, that it, which was not intentional, but has been um, a really great thing that's emerged from this is that it's kind of straw man's a, a tool. that's kind of like an online investment diary, which I'm, I'm a huge fan of, which is the, this idea of writing down why you're going to buy a share. I mean, you know what it's like. Fill your barbecue, and say, oh, you know, what, what should I buy? Or uh, more, more often, will be I. Oh, I bought X, Y, Z. You go great. Why? Oh, because it's going up. Well, you know, you, once you pick into it, you realize often actually there's nothing behind this other, other than something that's very speculative or something that's very flimsy. So we're we're saying, post your thoughts online and open that up to scrutiny. Not not because we want to embarrass you, not not because we want to make fun of you, but because we, we want. We we think that there's an intrinsic value in you doing that yourself. When you're forced to specify what you think the reasons are for buying a company, you know when you say when you're buying something, you 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 are um, in, specifically saying that it's cheap. The market is wrong. This thing needs to be higher. Well, how much higher? If you're buying um, BHP, well, what what do you think it's worth, and why do you think that's worth? Now, these are hard questions, and there's no exact right answer, but the very process. Of thinking about it and writing it down and committing that in a public forum will make you a much better investor so our claim is is that by doing that you 're helping yourself as well as the as well as the community because it 's once you go through that process, if you realize that oh man, actually I, now that i 've put it on paper it doesn 't seem as as solid or reliable as it did. It will prompt you to dig a little bit deeper and maybe build up that conviction. Or even better, it might avoid, help you avoid making a, a terrible mistake. Because you might just miss something as well. Totally. You totally uh, miss something.
1: And yep. this is, it's really interesting that you say this because I've had a couple of fundies on and, um, this is the kind of thing that they do in their meetings. They yes. come to their meetings and they, you know, they all have a thesis on particular um, shares and companies that they think are going to do well, and they've then got to defend that in a meeting. And it's like your peer review in strawman, and it's it's giving you the kind of tools that um, fund
0: managers are using to assess
1: whether they're going to invest in it.
0: Your your investment thesis is either right or wrong. It's as simple as that. So you know, I, I want to buy Afterpay because I think it's cheap. I'm right or wrong, one way or the other. Time will tell. Now, there's two ways I can figure out whether it's right or wrong. I can wait, and the market will eventually tell me. And I'm talking beyond the short-term sort of volatility here. like, you know, when when the fundamentals really sort of weigh in and sort of conclusively prove that, that you were right or wrong. You can find out by putting your money at risk, or you can find out by discussing with other engaged investors. So when I've put... My thoughts out there, and you sort of see other people coming up with with other perspectives, and it forces me to to think that I'm wrong, or you know, have a lot lower conviction. I really welcome that. That's fantastic. People sometimes a bit apologetic, like, oh, "I'm sorry, I didn't want to sort of attack your idea." No, thank you, thank you for proving me wrong. Because if you didn't, that's I, valuable I, information. I, I'd much it, rather to have me. a bit of a bruise to my ego then lose money on the share market. Mm. So, yes, please, if I am wrong, I want to know. Unfortunately, um, investing is a very male-dominated space. Um, All the organizations are where we just, you know, it's 90% male to 10% female. And guys are very ego-driven, um, they're very confrontational and all these sort of attributes that actually are just really terrible for investing in fact there's a lot of good studies that show girls are much better investors because they they lack all of these sort of um male flaws that we have but you've got to get over that and get over yourself it's not about ego it, it, it's about investing prudently and sensibly and if you can lean on the experience of others and the other thing that I think that's really valuable as well is that you, everyone is going to bring something to the table. So I, I used to work for an organisation that was a sort of a high net worth investment club, and we'd had people in there who had no experience on the share market, but they may have owned a manufacturing facility for the last twenty years. They're going to know a hundred times more about manufacturing than some twenty-seven year old analyst for Comsec. I think they are now. Maybe they don't know about discounted cash flow or you know, sort of the nuanced sort of highfalutin finance ideas. But they're going, to have, they're going to offer you an incredible world of insight. And next to them, there might be uh, a lady over there that's, that's spent, you know, 30 years in the healthcare industry. She is going to give you incredible insight. So when you sort of network all of these people together and people contribute in areas that they do have expertise, it's not that one person has to be the oracle of all knowledge here. But when you sort of sum that up, you get something that's really bigger than the sum of its parts. And it's, it's, it's really powerful. Upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's slash upgrade.
1: The checklist for investors. Yes. And this is great information for the the audience as well. So can we go through it? Sure. Okay, we've got, uh, I've just transcribed the questions that you use as a checklist for investors. And the first one is Do you
0: understand the business? Yes. So first thing to say here is I blatantly stole this off Warren Buffett.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's all, always about Warren Buffett. It's all, it's all you
0: hear about. <laughs> oh, man, when you've got someone who's been doing it for over 50 years with such incredible returns, you, you pay attention to what they say. And there's a, a few times he's sort of been interviewed or he's written in his annual report sort of about their general process. And Buffett sort of comes from this approach of investing is is easy but not simple. Uh, simple but not easy, sorry. And, and the idea here is that the big ideas, you know, in, they're very, very intuitive. They just make a great deal of sense. There's a lot of work you have to sort of do to backfill and support all of these kinds of ideas. But the very first idea is do you understand the business? and what's, know, what's it
1: actually like, doing? It sounds, <laughs> it sounds stupid <laughs> to, to say people, a lot that. Of people all, don't, don't, don't understand. Bill, I
0: can't tell you the number of yeah. times people give me a tip and then you say, oh, interesting. What do they do? Oh, something to do with computers. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. like, Man, if this wasn't on the share market, if you were just like a multimillionaire thinking of buying this thing outright, you'd want to know what the hell it does, wouldn't you? And I'm not just sort of saying categorize its industry. It's no good saying software or retail or mining. What what's their business model? What are the profit drivers here? What are the dynamics? Is this, is this a high volume, low margin business? Is this something that has lots of recurring revenue? Is it very cyclical? Um, is it capital intensive? Does it need a lot of money to sort of maintain? Or is it a very capital light business? And So again, this is where it's sort of, you start getting into the nuance. But that is the most fundamental of questions. If you can't explain to a 12-year-old accurately, not, not necessarily technically and in great detail, but accurately what a business does you've got no business investing in it okay so, so understand the business <laughs> excellent
1: okay so the next uh, point in the uh, the checklist is do you trust management is there any way of
0: ascertaining wow. that that's, that, a- that's so, so management is is critical unfortunately it's very hard to gauge no one puts out a presentation that says i am a crook and incompetent you know that, that doesn't happen and even the incompetent crooks have gotten to their position because they do have certain skill sets that, that have gotten to where they are today. They're, they're often very slick. They're often very good communicators and the rest of it. But Sociopaths sometimes. Sometimes, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, the share market is littered of examples of, of people out there feathering their own nest, telling the market what they want to hear. They, they, they weave a wonderful story. You, you have to remember as an investor that every company has a good story. If it didn't have a good story, it never would have listed, been able to list and raise funds in the first place. Now that story may may become bad over time, but but they all look good. They all have decent forecasts. You know, they're they're, they're all trying to to tell a story. So you have to be sceptical, not cynical, and you you have to do your best to sort of figure out. Who are these people? Are they trustworthy? Are they capable? Um, So there's a couple of things that you can do this. Like all things in investing, it requires a lot of reading. You know, uh, what was said over the last few years in investor presentations at annual general meetings and how is that matched up with reality? Now, even the CEO has no idea what the future holds, you know, but in broad strokes, have the things that they expected come to light? Do they have a sensible strategy? Is the strategy flip-flopping and changing every, you know, six months or so? when mistakes happen and I don't care what company and the best companies in the world is going to have difficulties. They're going to, they're going to make missteps. But when that happens, do they take ownership of it? Uh, and you'll, you'll get a real sense of it. I think one of the people talk about this next part a lot, which is for good reason, which is, do they have any skin in the game? You know, it's good. It's sort of good to talk a good game, but if you don't hold many shares in the company, it says volumes or you're selling shares, it sells volumes. The person who's sort of got a material holding and i don't mean they just got issued a bunch of performance shares i mean they've bought on market with their own money that's a material amount to them so that they would hurt if it lost that speaks volumes and you can find that information quite easily can't you asx announcements are all there you go to the annual report it'll tell you exactly how much they hold what options um the other one is is I'm really being on this idea of he whose bread I eat is song I sing. And it's this idea of incentives and, and what was that quote again? I he it. whose bread I eat is song I sing. So it's basically saying, you know, your, your master is the one that provides your, your yeah. livelihood type yeah. thing. And who's paying the pipe? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of, it's, it's a question of sort of looking for incentives. Um, unfortunately, a lot of remuneration consultants have done a great deal of damage over the years in terms of things that seem good at a high level, but, provide real perverse uh, incentives for, for senior management. And they'll often have a lot of short-term incentives to hit particular earnings or sales targets. And there's a lot of clever accounting and often very perfectly legal things that you can do to move things around. And and it it shifts the focus from... I would say that the main role of a CEO is, is capital allocation and in sort of long-term strategic thinking. But when you're just trying to sort of massage the last quarter sales figures to make sure that you get your bonus you can do that. And you can uh, see that, can you? Yeah, you can see exactly. You can, you can, you can see you know, here are the performance rights and these are the conditions under which they vest. It's all in the remuneration report, in, mm-hmm. in the annual report. Yeah, well, Legally, it all has to... No one reads it, by the way. Well, very <laughs> few people do. But it's a, it's a wonderful... And it, This isn't about people being evil or anything. This is just people being people. If mm. you put me in charge of a company and you say that if you can increase earnings by 10% this year, we're going to give you a million dollars, I'm really going to try and do that, right? It's, that's what I want to do. Uh, and I guess
1: founder-run uh, oh, founder run companies founder run
0: yeah yeah these people they started the business by the time it 's gotten to the a s x it's already had a great deal of success, and they generally have a huge amount of shares it 's hard to sell shares that many, you know if you own forty percent of a business you can 't sell that easily, so they they have a much bigger incentive to think longer term and really create that value, mm. and you can even look to at things like the, the 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 actual salary that they 're on, you know um uh, versus sort of the, the incentive payments. And again, you don't have to be an expert for this kind of stuff. You'll read it and you'll get a sense of, you know, well, this this he or she is going to really have a strong inducement to do X, Y, and Z. And is that is that in line with long-term strategic, sensible thinking and, and wealth creation for this business? So what are the risks? So this is huge. So all of us have a bias in investing on focusing on what can go right. I think you need to spend as much, if not more, time uh, asking what can go wrong. Um, because things will go wrong. And 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 you need to sort of be able to... The person who thinks of that in advance has a huge advantage. A lot of people in the market react to news. I heard it. I heard it. Actually, it a great term last night. Oh, yes. A pre-mortem. A pre-mortem. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? Because <laughs> then if it happens... You've, you've thought it through. You sort of game theoried it, it out, you know, if, if X was to happen, you know, what does that mean? So, I don't know, pick an example with, um, BHP. Well, one risk is that commodity prices could fall. Well, well, how much damage would that do? Well, what's their cost of extract? How much does it take? It's all in your report, right? All this stuff's there. How, how much does it cost to take an, a ton of iron ore out of the ground? And what can they sell it for? And what's that going to do to their profits? Moreover, Is this something that is realistic? Well, commodity prices are going to fluctuate. I guarantee you of that. You know, you you can't anyone think, oh, geez, I didn't expect that. That's crazy. It's going to happen. So, so, so not only do you have to think about what can go wrong, but you have to sort of tease apart the difference between what you might call a structural issue, a big problem, versus a cyclical temp- temporary issue. So retailers, they're going to have a tough time in a recession. They just are. Doesn't mean they're a bad business. It just means as an investor, don't expect perfectly smooth earnings growth. It's, it's, you're in a fairyland if you think that's going to happen. If you're Maya and you run a department store, and that business model is dying and is under phenomenal threat from the internet well that's a very that isn't something that's just a temporary inevitable to be expected cyclical phenomenon that is wow, this business might not actually exist in ten years time and that is a much very much more uh, 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 difficult thorny problem so so think about it everything that can go wrong the 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 flight is is this company. At a, zoomed out at a broader scale, moving in the right direction, and does the price accu- accurately sort of reflect that view? Okay. The balance sheet is the balance sheet in good shape. Yes. Um, so that's that's another massive one. What um, is the balance sheet? So the they? balance you've got, you've got um, well three main types of financial statements. The first is the income statement: how much money did you make? What are your expenses? What's the profit left over? And that tends to be the main. For obvious reasons, the, the the focus of a lot of investors. You know, you, how we value shares depends on the profitability and of the business. It makes a great deal of sense. The balance sheet looks at all of the assets, all the things that are worth money that the company owns, and its liabilities, all the things that it owes, um, accounts payable, debt, these kinds of things. And the difference between the two is what we call equity, which is another way of saying net assets. So companies can do what we can do as individuals. So I could go and take a huge loan out from um, the bank and I could go put it on a horse. And if that horse wins, well, you know, I only have to pay back what I borrowed, but I get all of the profit from those borrowers. So I get this huge leverage returns. Wonderful. But if it loses or, you know, I can lose. All, I can not only lose my money, but I can lose all the money that I've borrowed and now I'm in a whole world of trouble. And It happens all the time on the market. And, and most investors don't look at the balance sheet again until it's too late. So you look at things like, well, how much debt do they have? How much cash do they have? If they did have a couple of difficult years, could they survive? The businesses that go bust and delist almost not always but almost always it's a debt related problem uh the gfc was a great example of that a lot of comp, all companies virtually had a terrible time of it but the companies that had they weren't beholden to any lenders and had plenty of cash in reserve they weathered the storm not only did they weather the storm but they actually emerged much much stronger because all their idiot competitors who weren't as prudent probably went out of business or they had the chance to buy them at a at fire sale prices so for companies with very very strong balance sheets these these periods of disruption actually long term end up being a wonderful thing they gain more market share they lose competitors and they're there to fight another day okay and then the final question is what price is a fair price oh it's huge (laughs) so it is um at the end of the day uh no business on this planet is worth an infinite amount. And most businesses are probably worth more than zero. So a fair value is somewhere between those two points, zero and infinity. Um, let's, I'm glad we've
1: narrowed it down. We've narrowed it down. so
0: We're, 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 we're at a good starting point. So the, the way of thinking about what's called intrinsic value or fair value is it's just the, the total value of all the money that a company is ever going to earn in its life. And we just adjust that by a discount rate because a hundred dollars today is worth more than a hundred dollars in the future. So if a company is going to earn $10 million in 10 years time, well, I'm not going to give it a $10 million value today. So I discount that all back, but, but that we can define intrinsic value perfectly. We can never calculate it perfectly because none of us can predict the future, but what, what people need to do when they're looking at a company is is, is sort of trying to work out a price that is – and a fair price is one that is going to give you a decent return over time, assuming the share market closed tomorrow and all you got was the, the cash flows that this business generated. But I'm a big fan on sort of being generally right again, as, as opposed to specifically wrong. There's some really good rules of thumb that you can employ here. If I'm, uh, I think Woolies is an interesting example at present. It's a $37 share price. Woolies is a great business. Yeah, for it'll be around for decades to come. Great business, no question. Pays a great dividend. It's delivered incredible wealth for, for shareholders over a long period of time but oh, I should have looked at it before I said this, but the, the price to earnings ratio, the price of the company relative to its profit, something like 27 times. Now this is a business that, as I say, a good one, eh, it's probably going to go between three and 5% per year at best. It's not after pay. It's not going to go at 20% per year. <laughs> it's just not, you know, and that's, that's no criticism on the case. It's a very mature business. So, I could probably say for these kinds of businesses again interest rates will sort of muck this up a little bit but you know it's in the current environment maybe a p of 18 to 20 is is far more sensible so the higher the price i pay the harder it is for it's going to have an inverse impact on my future returns the business is the business is the business if i buy woolies at $1 i'm going to make a fortune if i buy it at $100 i'm going to lose all my money what point between there is 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 sensible relative to the earnings capacity of the business. Okay, so we just talked
1: about price-earnings ratio, and we yes, have dis- discussed this on the podcast before, but just for someone who's just come into this podcast and this is the first episode they've listened to, this is one of the most common numbers that you're yes. going to see you know, when you go and look at the value of a company. Yep. And it's
0: really easy at a high level, but again, like all of these fundamental ratios, context is the key word here. It, yeah. it matters. I've got shares in a company whose P.E. is 200. <laughs> now, the average of the market long-term is about 16.
1: So. Yeah, so that's so what you're looking for. Like, in, in a traditional sense,
0: something with a P.E. of 12 is really good value. Yeah. Something with 6 is, a, is really good value. Insane value. Yeah. 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 But plenty of people have done their dough by buying companies at a P.E. of 6. You're using last year's earnings yeah. or an inaccurate forecast of this year's earnings to for the for the denominator, for the E part here. So there's these are what are called value traps. They look cheap because the ratio is so low. But when the future comes along and says that those earnings were really not, not they, they, they weren't apparent, they didn't appear. You know, if earnings halve, your PE doubles, mm-hmm. right? And so all of a sudden you thought you were buying a PE of six and actually you are buying a PE of 12. And even though that sounds cheap, it's probably not for a company that's, that's losing, you know, his profits dropping by 10% every year. Um, To take the other example of a company of a PE of 200 sounds ridiculously expensive, but if this is off a very low earnings base, they've just tipped into profitability, passed through an inflection point, Um, they're growing their earnings at 30, 40% per year. It doesn't take many years of growth for that PE to come right back down. So, again, context matters here. And PEs are, and dividend yields and debt to equity ratios and all of these sort of fundamental measures are really great rules of thumb, but don't rely on them alone. Put them into context.
1: So tell us about Strawman. How do people get welcomed
0: into the Strawman community? You just sign up. It's <laughs> as easy as that. Strawman. Strawman.com. Create an account. Uh, have a look around. We're, as I say, we're about, oh, geez, about 15 months Old Now, but we've been really, really thrilled with the response. Uh, We've now got well over 4000 users on the platform. Uh, We added the last welcome to the last 1000 users in half the time we added the previous one. We got venture capital backing uh, a couple months ago as well. So we've got a lot more resources. And we are doing some really cool things. We're actually right now working on a new scorecard system. So before you could just recommend a company. Now we're actually going to give you a a play money portfolio. You can actually position size and you can do a lot more really cool things. Um, So, yeah, we're we're, we're super excited about it. Um, And we're only as good as our community. So if, if you're the kind of investor that that wants to collaborate and connect with other investors and you want to do it in a, in a really sort of safe, um, friendly and encouraging setting, we'd love to have you on board. It's more than finance. You know, I've got companies that are in, you know, they're doing remote censoring, other companies that are doing some really cool stuff in the healthcare space. So it's, it's well beyond just these numbers and spreadsheets and that and you get to learn. So it's just really fascinating and interesting. And I'd really encourage people to, to, to really throw themselves into it and, and just to read and, and to learn as much as you can. It's a process that will never stop. You know, doing it for 20 years. I'm learning new stuff all of the time, making mistakes all of the time. But you find that like anything, any endeavor that's worthwhile in life, it requires a bit of effort. And like anything that's worthwhile in life, the more effort and practice you put in, the better you will be. And the rewards are great. Again, I'm not saying get rich quick, but if you can compound your wealth 10% a year, um, it doesn't sound like much. That's phenomenal. That is so phenomenal. And, um, And you can have a lot of fun on the way. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me, Phil. It's been
1: great. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production with that special Greek delicious flavour. Remember, music always flows even when the money won't.